Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at SchoolStatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 259, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. This episode, what is a third place? We'll tell you why it's important to identify and how it could actually improve your mental health. Stay with us. Class Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each episode, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This episode, we hear from a total solar eclipse expert. After all, we're just a couple of months from having a total solar eclipse pass over the United States, something that won't happen again for another 20 years. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by friend, chief academic officer, as well as co-host of the Class Dismissed podcast, Chris, or Dr. Christina Pollard. Christina, how are you doing today? <laughs> I'm doing good. It's okay. I'm still getting used to it myself. <laughs> right? I know. I know. And I, you know, it's harder in title, and I want to make sure we uh, we slip that in there. Um, I've got an interesting concept today that I wanted to bring up, and it's actually been around for a long time, but I stumbled across it in, I guess, what you can call is like trending TikTok, trending Instagram type feeds. And it may seem like a, an obvious thing, but I'd never really put a name to it and never really thought a whole lot about it. And here it is. It's called the concept of a third place. Have you ever heard of this? No. Okay. So it was originally popularized by a sociologist. His name was Ray Oldenburg in his book titled The Great Good Place. It was published in 1989. Okay. And okay. the term refers to a place that is separate from the two usual social environments that we all have, which is home and work. And then there needs to be a third place, okay? And in this third place, this is where you can gather, socialize, interact in a relaxed and informal setting, and it plays a crucial role in your life and community building and, and fostering social connections. <laughs> Does target count? <laughs> right? And so that's that's what we're going to talk about. What counts as a third place? How do you find that third place? And why is it important to have the third place? So, I mean, I'm we, too pumped about this. <laughs> so, I mean, like in your mind, do you have a third place? Like, if you're if you're stopping things, I a think my third place has changed over years. So maybe early in my teaching career, I definitely had a third place. There were a group of us that taught together and we hung out together. And so that third place was when we each would host the group, if that makes sense. Right. And um, we didn't do schoolwork together. We literally just spent time together and just kind of a self-care type of thing. And then over time, that evolved as I became a wife, a mom, you know. So you'll laugh. That third place was the ball field. I absolutely love um, watching my kids play sports. I love football. And so that was my thing. The coaches' wives and the players and just anything, you know, surrounding um, athletics. But it has since kind of changed. Um, I find solace, believe it or not, in a bookstore, in uh, walking around Target. Um, and then whether this is appropriate or not, my favorite restaurant and bar. <laughs> right. Okay. So <laughs> you see some of the same faces. Right. And you are listing a lot of what are, you would call as examples of third places. Like in the article I have here, coffee shops, 
bookstores, parks, yes. community centers, bars, clubs, you know, a gym, whatever. There's one little distinguishing characteristic that I think we should talk about, though, when it comes to these third places, because really, like a third place is not supposed to have hierarchy. It's supposed to be welcoming. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's like people from different backgrounds can come and engage in conversation. Yes. And um, and I think that it shouldn't be expensive. And the reason I want to talk about that is because a lot of times, like you could say, like oh, a coffee shop, I like to go hang out at Starbucks. But the fact that a Starbucks coffee is seven dollars now, right? Like, is that really a true third place? If you've got to like shell out a minimum of five to seven dollars every time you go, like you can't go every day, right? Right. Like you're going to end up going to your house and drinking your own cup of coffee. Well, I mean, I guess you can. Well, then I expensive. guess that would mean. The bookstore and Target couldn't be that for me or the restaurant because that could get really expensive. But what if you have multiple third places, um, you know, one to three of them, that those are just your little regular spots. Like sometimes I can just walk the aisles of Target and look at really gorgeous home items that they have. Um, right, just being there. Yeah. And it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to purchase them, but it gives me ideas and I just kind of, you know, him haw around. In the bookstore, I'll be honest, generally I'm going to leave with a book. But sometimes it really is just to peruse the books and to be in that place because I love books and I love the bookstore. Right. I mean, yeah, bookstores in general. Like I think if in the world of Kindle and Audible, like we kind of go, how do bookstores survive? And I think it's basically because of what you say. Like it's like it's something about smelling the paper, being in the bookstore, being around other people, you know, and just looking um, in that environment. And I think the fact that that is a third place for those reasons. I really liked your your baseball park example, because I feel like that is definitely a third place. Like that is somewhere where, you know, yeah. like you, it, it doesn't matter where where, you, where do you work? Um, how much money do you make? Like, it's not like that. Like you're just out there to watch baseball and talk about your kids. And, and whether you have kids on the field or not, you can be supporting somebody else's kids right. and just really enjoying, you know, a family atmosphere. Right. So I, I think in my mind, while we can list some of these places, like a bar, right? Like I would love, like there might be a bar where, you know, it's happy hour and you can get a Mick Ultra for two, three dollars, right? Um, like I think that counts. and have long conversation for that two or three dollars. Exactly. But if you start going to a bar in New York City or Vegas and your old fashioned costs Very thirty dollars, I don't feel like that would classify as a third place because it's so darn expensive. No. But definitely different. But I'm thinking about, you know, think about our neighborhood and what type of restaurants um are in our neighborhood. And so they're not as expensive as if, as if you know we were in Vegas or um New York, but there can be some costly places if we were to, you know, maybe head downtown or something to to that effect. So you have to be picky. Yeah, that's funny you say that because, um, you know, we we moved out of Mississippi um, to Orlando area, and we haven't found what I would call my third place Mexican restaurant, like the inexpensive oh, Mexican man. restaurant where you can just kind of like, you know, you go with your wife and your daughter and you get out of there for like 30 to 40 bucks, not 70 to a hundred dollars, you know? Correct. And we, mm-hmm. I went to my third place last night. Right. Exactly. So sh- <laughs> all by myself. And it was wonderful. For me, it's like, shout out to Cinco de Mayo in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, you know, that's where I is that where you were, right. Cause it's like never really, my- it's good and it's never that expensive, you know? So nope. Catch a little soccer on the two. Yeah, exactly. So, um, but anyhow, I think first let's, all right. So we've like identified like what these places are and it's clearly important, right? Like it is a huge stretch relief probably for you to go to the ballpark we have a little um where we live now we have a park um around the corner it's like a half mile away or less we walk there or ride our bikes there and it's just people that we don't know that we start socializing with at this park and my daughter's playing with other kids and stuff and that's a third place for me right like that's a release and, and mm-hmm. a good place to go um i guess what could be a third place 
for an educator? Because it's like, all right, you could say like, all right, the teacher's lounge, but you're still at work, right? I definitely wouldn't consider the teacher's lounge a third place because there's usually a negative Nelly in that space. Mm -hmm. So it's not, you know, a positive, upbeat location unless your school just has like an impeccable culture and the lounge is designed for self-care moments. Um, But that's pretty rare. Maybe like, do you guys ever do like book clubs or anything like in a... Oh, I'm absolutely a part of some book clubs. And for some of them, they're they're virtual because we all live in different states. So that that can definitely be a third place. But see, that's scheduled. It might be once a month. A third place to me needs to be something that you can um, access at any time. You just feel you need that. Place. I think, um, I don't know if, if any world that you're in uses Slack, like the actual like uh, communication tool that a lot of workplaces use. Are you familiar with it? Mm-hmm. I'm not. You're always introducing me okay, to things. Okay, so I know, like, uh, my wife's company, they use Slack, and they have people from all over the world working, right? And Slack's design, it's kind mm-hmm. of an email replacement in a lot of ways. You can move large files and, and quickly communicate with people, um, but there's channels in there, right? And some are very official and, and work-centric, but then they have a lot of other channels that are like, you know, what book are you reading? Or the run, the running club, like, and you can go into that channel and talk about a race that you have coming up and so forth. I so that. I, I, I say that to say, I think a third place can be virtual, uh, maybe not as meaningful and as fulfilling as maybe, you know, that park or something, but. But it might be if it's regularly accessible and people are always in the, in the room or in the, on the channel. So, and then I started thinking like, okay, well, what's a third place for the kids, the kids that we teach and the kids that are in the class, our classroom. All the playground. Right? So, <laughs> Whether it's where they live or at the park or wherever, wherever they can run and just be so excited. Right. Youth centers, if they, if they have that. Um, and then mm-hmm. I started thinking. YMCA. When I think about like a place where the, the playing field's somewhat leveled, I, I think about my son who would play Fortnite and the people he would play with in Fortnite weren't necessarily the people that he would hang out with at school. And I liked True. that, you know, I was like, mm-hmm. he made mm-hmm. different friends in that environment. Um, so I think, you know, it's kind of weird, like an Xbox could be a third place for a student. You I know? think it's definitely a third place for students because I know my son, um, when he was in high school, at any given time, there might have been 15 or 20 of his buddies <laughs> right. on the headset and they had a ball. And just hearing him giggle and you know laugh out loud, it tickled me at times and I had no idea what they were talking about, but he laughed a lot. Right. In the, in the summertime, maybe like a swimming pool, if you have like a neighborhood swimming pool or something that's walking distance for kids. So anyhow, this is not necessarily like a teacher concept as much as it is a sociology concept, but I just felt like it's important for us. It's a great idea. Yeah. It's important for us to at at minimum identify what those places are and recognize if they make us feel better and then visit those places more often. You know, that's, that's pretty much it. I love that. You know, I'm going to need you to send that to me. Yeah, sure. Um, all right. Are you ready for today's bright idea? Yep. Let's go. On April 8th, 2024, a total solar eclipse is anticipated to be visible from parts of North America, including Mexico, the United States, and Canada. The path of totality, that's where the sun, is completely obscured by the moon. It'll pass over several states, including Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Missouri, Illinois, Kentucky, Indiana, Ohio, New York, Vermont, and Maine. Now, the last time we had a total solar eclipse visible 
from the United States. It occurred on August 21st, 2017. Some of you may have seen it in totality. Now, after this April's 2024 eclipse, we will not have another chance to see one, at least here in the United States, until 2044, so another 20 years. Now, back in 2017, we interviewed Dr. Glenn Schneider on the Class Smith podcast. He's been chasing total solar eclipses since he was 14 years old, and he has witnessed 33, an accomplishment that only two other people in history can put on their resume. I want to revisit that interview with Dr. Glenn Schneider so he can give us some perspective and remind us about what's so special about a total solar eclipse and why we should use it as an opportunity to inspire students who may be future scientists. Dr. Schneider is an astronomer at the University of Arizona's Stewart Observatory. Dr. Schneider, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you, Nick. Appreciate talking to you. Why is this such a big deal? Um, total solar eclipses are not that rare an event. They occur on average about once every 16 months or so. But to have them in a particular location or particular country is more infrequent. So it's a great opportunity for lots of people here in the United States. And now, when I say you're an expert, you really are. I mean, you have actually led 33, I guess, expeditions. Is that right? By land, sea, and air of viewing total solar eclipses. Is that correct? That's correct. Some are not expeditions per se, just myself and several other people with more informal uh, going at it. But uh, yeah, that is correct. I saw my first total solar eclipse when I was 14 in 1970 and uh, have traveled to every one since except one that was not possible to get to. Uh, so that's 33 times over that period of years. And, and I want to say I read somewhere that there's only one other person in history who has seen as many as you. Is that correct? Actually, I believe it's two, and I know both of them. They're both personal friends and colleagues. One is uh, Professor Jay Pasikoff at Williams College in Massachusetts, and the other is John Beatty, who is a New York City resident and a document proofreader by profession, but an eclipse chaser by addiction. That's so cool. Why is this such a fascination for you? Uh, I have to. I, I should say that while I'm an astronomer, I'm not a solar physicist, and actually studies of eclipses, solar eclipses, is not my avocation. I actually do work in, in extrasolar planet formation and high contrast imaging. Mm -hmm. But I got addicted to eclipses, and addicted is the right word, as I use for John, when I saw my first eclipse in 1970, because it is such a viscerally dramatic uh, event not like anything else that you can experience. It's it's a true gift to humanity is the way I sort of describe it. So um, I got hooked at a very early age, and it's just that uh, the dynamics of the solar system in play and being at that nexus, at that central point of it, it, has an amazing draw, and it's very difficult to describe to somebody who hasn't seen one before. You have to kind of describe for everybody, like, why is this such an amazing thing to watch? So just just as a more than a visual phenomena, it really connects you with the workings of the solar system, sort of a personal view of celestial mechanics in a way. But the ph phenomenology is really sort of incredible. The, the, the moon itself is almost exactly one four hundredth the size of the sun uh, in physical diameter, but the sun is 400 times further away. So we have this sort of remarkable coincidence, and it is just a coincidence that they're this approximately same angular size in the sky. And at the epoch of humans occupying the Earth just at the right time, because the moon's orbit is spiraling out. So it, it's sort of a coincidence we can sort of see these things with the moon exactly or close to exactly uh, blocking the view of the sun. And that's really the important point here is when the moon gets exactly interposed between yourself 
and the then the sun it bright it blocks the bright solar surface and you can see the extended atmosphere of the sun called the corona which is a tortured tenuous atmosphere that is controlled in a sense by the sun's magnetic fields and outflow of solar wind and has an amazing amazing and beautiful structure to it and I'd like to talk about both of those things, both the science side and just the amazing beauty of it. And first, let's focus on the beauty. If somebody's sitting at home listening or driving around and they go, you know what? We live in amazing times. Someone's going to capture this on camera and I'll just watch it on my computer or my TV at home. Is it different to see it in person? It is completely different. There is no photograph, no video, no digital capture of a total solar eclipse that is like seeing it imaged on your own retinas. And, it, and the reason I say that, it's not just a visual event in, in seeing seeing totality. It's the, the drop in temperature that's associated with it, the, uh, the reactions of the animals that might be around, the reactions of the people that may be around. Uh, it, 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 for some, it's an individual spiritual event. Uh, for others, it's a community event to be shared. Um, no, no photograph does justice simply because of the huge dynamic range and brightness of the solar phenomena that you're seeing. You've seen so many of these. Have you ever seen a change in the animals around you? Any, any animals behaving differently? Oh, many times in different ways. Uh, in, in the first time in 1972 at the southern shore of the St. Lawrence River, um, which unfortunately was the first eclipse I was fully clouded out of. So I didn't get to see totality. But just at second contact, which is the instant at which the, the sun is completely covered and the moon shadow comes over and the darkness really fell, especially behind a wall of clouds that we were under, um, a, a cloud of mosquitoes arose from the bank of the river where we were set up that we didn't know were there, that we were sure were triggered later um, by the onset of that false night. So not only was it horrible that we had been clouded out of the eclipse, but we were being eaten alive by this <laughs> massive rise of mosquitoes that came out of nowhere, thinking it was nighttime and good to feed on the astronomers that were there. So that's uh, one example of, of wow. uh, an animal interaction. On the science side, as a scientist who's trying to observe, I guess they're really looking at the corona. Uh, what are they trying to get? What science can be gathered? Yeah, there, there's a number of different things. And of course, a lot of it is sort of the coupling of the dynamics and energy generation of the sun f flowing through its photosphere, out through the corona and into the inter interplanetary medium beyond. Um, only during a total... So now, we do have spacecraft, of course, that can observe the solar corona. The, the issue is how close they can get to the surface of the sun and at what um, efficacy that imaging can be done. So there are space-based coronagraphs that pick up, if you will, um, some of the imaging that can be done at larger distances, but not where it's sort of critical, where you have this really transition regime between the, the photosphere itself, the visible disk of the sun, and the inner part of the corona. And that's where the energy transport really changes and how the interaction of the magnetic field works. So we we have this sort of a small window of opportunity to study that and couple that with spacecraft measurements as well. If somebody's um, out watching this, do you recommend that they try to record it with their phone and take pictures or do you recommend they just enjoy it for themselves and not fumble uh, with a camera? Yeah, I tell you, if it's, if it's the first total solar eclipse you're seeing, I would say don't bother taking pictures. You know, I mean, it's really easy to pick up a cell phone and take a snapshot, and that, that may be fine. We've got two minutes or so, depending on where you are. But don't get involved in a, a photographic program for your first or video program for your first total solar eclipse. I mean, in my own case, I had no choice. I, I 
basically prepared a number of cameras and such. Again, when I was 14 years old for this first eclipse and when totality happened, I, I was frozen like the proverbial deer in the headlights and lost months of practice of exactly <laughs> what I was going to do. I, I, I think the mind's eye is much more important to capture. Savor the event. Don't be fumbling with cameras. Uh, if it's other people will take pictures. Emergency management, um, and traffic, um, you know, highway transportation, are they concerned about the possibility of hundreds of millions of people trying to watch this? Well, I think locally, probably hundreds of thousands. Um, there have been many estimates of how many people may travel into the path of totality uh, who don't naturally live there. And it's been up around 10 million or so, depending upon who's doing the estimation. Uh, but that can get concentrated into local pockets. Uh, where the weather is good or where people think the infrastructures might support it. I, I don't think there's going to be as much problem in, in large cities um, uh, that are in the path of totality, but the smaller areas like we've been talking about uh, may experience real problems with gasoline shortages and road congestion, cell phone uh, systems that just can't handle those kind of crowds. The the good news is that community planners and and managers have caught wind of this quite early on. And a lot of that it, it was uh, helped by uh, professional outreach through the American Astronomical Society and other groups informing local communities that, hey, this is coming. It's a great economic opportunity for you as well. But you know nobody's trying to be a doomsayer here. But the reality is you take a small town population of 6,000 or so, and you put 100,000 people in it, um, it, can, it can stress the capability and infrastructure. If you were teaching uh, kids or teens about the importance of, of seeing this, what's your message to them? Oh, if you have any opportunity to get to the path of totality, if you don't live there, take it. Uh, it is not only a visually spectacular event, it actually triggers much interest. We've seen this episodically when it's gone over major population centers and such, so there can be follow-up studies, but it really triggers interest in science and technology and, ed and education and outreach opportunities as well. But um, it is such a dramatic event. It actually does change people's lives in many ways. Um, if there's any opportunity to get to the path of totality, definitely do. If you can't, certainly watch the partial eclipse safely with appropriate viewing filters or solar glasses. The other message I would convey is that there really is no such thing as an almost eclipse. A partial solar eclipse, even if it's 99.9% .9 covered, is a completely different phenomena from what you would see if you are within that zone of totality. So if you're living five miles away and you sort of say, well, I'll see a 99.9% .9 eclipse, it's almost the same thing. It isn't, especially if you're that close, get into the path. It isn't because what's the main thing that's different? Is it just it uh, get pitch black or? Is, if even a small amount of the solar photosphere is still remaining, it just absolutely kills the contrast. You're right. It's not dark enough, but it's the contrast of how bright that surface brightness of the sun is relative to the corona. And even just the littlest bit is just overwhelming glare. You, you've got to be in the moon's umbral shadow with the moon fully co covering the sun. And, and does it get pitch black? Like, is it almost as if there's no streetlights or anything, or is there still some light? No, there, there still is some light. And it depends very much from eclipse to eclipse on how wide the shadow is, how clear the sky is, whether you're scattering clouds and so forth. Typically, the brightness... I hate to say typically because there's a lot of variation, but but uh, you know, for fairly typically, it's about a half an hour to forty minutes after sunset. It's about that level of brightness, so it's like sort of 
halfway or a little bit more deeply into twilight. Mm-hmm. So it's not like it's complete darkness. There's there's light that scatters in uh, from the atmosphere out beyond the moon's shadow, just normal aerosol scattering from the from the you know in the atmosphere of the Earth, or even scattering by clouds if there are clouds. So the notion that it's completely dark is not right. Um, the notion that it is darker, like a twilight darkness, is correct. Got it. And and you started to touch on this. Is it the safety precautions, getting the appropriate glasses? Is there any other safety precautions besides glasses that you really need to take? Uh, well, that's primarily it. Other than, that, of course, if you're going to be outside for a couple of hours, even if in a partial cliff, you can get a sunburn. So just like on any other day, use sunscreen. People don't think about it. They go, oh, the sun's going to be eclipsed. I'm not going to need sun. I live in Arizona, so I'm sensitized to that. So, gotcha. I understand. Um, but the, uh, the the main message is if you are viewing the partial eclipse outside of the path of totality or the partial phases of the total eclipse before it becomes total or after um, in within that region where you can see it is total, you do during the partial coverage need to have, if you're viewing it directly, appropriate and safe viewing eclipse glasses or eclipse filters. They're available from from a number of very reputable commercial sources, very inexpensively. There's nothing there's nothing special about a danger of seeing a partial eclipse that's different than looking at the sun at any other time. You'd never really consider looking at the sun this directly. It's just right. You know, you're tempted because, hey, there's an eclipse going on. Let me see what it looks like. I've actually already ordered my glasses. Um, they came in and I immediately put them on and just went and looked at the sun with the glasses on, which I've never done before. And that go. alone was fascinating. I'd, I never really had seen it through that perspective. No, it, it's absolutely true. Yeah, the solar viewing glasses are good to use, not just for solar eclipses. You can use them to view the sun at any other time. On occasion, and it depends on how good your eyes are, when you have a massive sunspot group, uh, it can grow. There can be sunspot groups that are actually are large enough so you can see them naked eye. Uh, when I say naked, I mean protected. So during periods of high solar activity, we were having a lot of sunspot, large sunspot activity. With those glasses, you can see spots on the sun. Dr. Glenn Schneider, I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, share your expertise with uh, our listeners. Um, And hopefully you can join us again for uh, a future episode on some similar topic. Are you ready for our pop quiz? I can try. (laughs) All right. Um, If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should that be? That's an incredibly difficult question. And uh, even though I'm a scientist, I probably would not say science is incredibly valuable as that is today. Um, I I think today, though, that there's... uh, we do have literacy problems in general. Mathematics is really important, and it sort of bridges many things. Um, so uh, I, I would stress I would not I would stress at least a basic understanding of mathematics simply because it's an underpinning for so many things. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? I think that there has been a de-emphasis in many school systems um, with cutbacks in funding and such. Again, in STEM education, I mean, there's a lot of outreach towards that. But in recent times, there has been, I hate to say it, but almost an anti-science movement. Maybe I'm sensitive to this because I am a scientist, but I see it leaking down into the elementary and secondary school levels. Mm -hmm. By the time you get beyond that, it's too late. You've got to really have sort of that 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 basic um, understanding or at least or at least appreciation if you will instilled uh, at the early k through 12 level uh, what does every child deserve 
I think every child deserves a good education. I think that's essential. I mean, we're talking about education, and it's an essential stepping stone for for later life and uh, an unbiased education. What do you think the biggest challenge is for today's educators? Uh, that's that's a tough one. I think it may be, well, funding is certainly one. I mean, throwing money at something doesn't always help the situation. But again, there are just so many schools, so many school districts and so many programs that are just beyond economically stressed and economically challenged. Uh, we, we have that. I don't have the solution to that, but it definitely is the problem. I, I, we just need to... It, We really need to put more and better resources and distributed better into what we're trying to do. Mm -hmm. What teacher changed your life? Um, Well, this is going to be a biased answer, and I'm going to say it was my mother because my mother was an elementary school teacher. (laughs) Well, that's great. And and, uh, I actually got the benefit of her, her dual role, if you will. Um, when I, before I started my K through 12 education, I would sit sometimes in her first and second grade classes and kind of got a leg up that way. Um, of course there was no conflict of interest. I wasn't actually in the same school once I started, but, uh, having that benefit, I think was, was a personally a great one. Last question, pen or pencil? Pen. All right. Again, Dr. Snyder, thank you so much for uh, joining us and, uh, it's been a lot of fun. We appreciate you taking the time. I appreciate that. My final word is to everybody, if you've got a chance to see it, don't quibble. Go see it. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismissed. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed. <laughs>